Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the founder and editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to say we have Brigentine French on the show. She teaches anthropology at Grinnell, and we'll be talking about her work at Grinnell and also a few of her books, um, the most recent of which is Anthropological Lives, an introduction to the profession of anthropology. Brigentine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Marshall. I'm glad that we finally have been able to connect, and I'm really delighted to uh, be with you for this time. That's great. Thank you. Um, So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, What to tell you about me? I um have been at Grinnell for 20 years. I first came in 2003 on a temporary position. It is really the last place I would have imagined ending up. Um I'm actually a native Iowan. Really? I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah, I'm I'm a native Iowan and I really didn't um know anything. I didn't it's, it's not an exaggeration to say I really didn't know about Grinnell College as an undergrad. So um, it wasn't really on my radar until I earned my PhD and saw this really amazing opportunity um, to, to work at Grinnell. That's great. Can you, uh, where are you from in Iowa? I'm from Northwest Iowa, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I say this because I used to be a professor at the University of Iowa, and I spent oh, a lot of time yes. in Iowa City. Yes. My PhD is from the University of Iowa, actually. Is that right? Yes. Well, this is a Grinnell College podcast, but let's give a shout out to the University of Iowa, a place I love. Indeed, a fine institution. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So can you tell us why you became an anthropologist? I actually, really, I fell in love with anthropology. This is something that I that I talk about Um in the book that that I co-wrote with Virginia Dominguez. And I was at the University of Iowa as an undergraduate and, you know, had an advisor, was probably a graduate student advising, you know, masses of undergraduates. And I, I think he understood that I was drawn to the social sciences. I didn't really have that language at the time. And so he kept recommending, you know, take a political science class, take a a sociology class. I did all of those things. And he said, well, I thought you might like, you know, maybe you should consider taking an anthropology class. And I resisted that actually. Um, I, and I resisted <laughs> it because I didn't, because I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and, Irony of ironies. <laughs> yes. And so then I, when I, so I took my first anthropology class in the second semester of my sophomore year. And I literally became so enthralled with anthropology that I, I um, I was really eager to declare, like, I knew this is for me. I, I recognize myself in the questions of anthropology. Um, and I ran out to declare my major very quickly after because I was convinced, you know, that it was going to be full. <laughs> like, everyone <laughs> would discover this thing and there wouldn't be any space for me. So yeah. um, I really... I really loved deeply the the space and the questions um, and the kind of endless ability to interrogate almost anything you can think of as long as it pertains to to humanity, you know? 
Um, so I, I got an A plus in my sociology class. I didn't find it. It's not any, this is not any critique of my, of any colleagues in sociology, but I remember, you know, thinking doing well in sociology, but it didn't call to me. And anthropology really called to me in a way that I didn't even know was possible. Um, you know, in terms of the life of the mind, I was new to all of that. And it was yeah. like, uh, yeah, waking up almost in some ways. I, I really, I really love your expression that you recognized yourself in the discipline. That's very well put because a similar sort of thing happened to me when I was at Grinnell and I recognized myself in history. I was like, this really fits me well. Well, and I really think it's so wonderful to hear you say that because I really think that is at the core of what we try to do in the classroom at Grinnell to create intellectual, social, spa- ethical spaces where we invite students to, to find themselves. And I don't mean that like it's not discipline specific, but it's that moment of, of recognition that, um, that it's a space that invites you in to go and gives you, right? And then we give students hopefully the opportunity to go deeper. So that I think is one of the things you know that makes Grinnell special and I think it's yeah I think that I, I think that's very well put I mean my advisor at Grinnell was a fellow named Dan Kaiser he's now yes. retired yes but but I I met him I had my freshman seminar with him and I essentially said if I could do what this guy does I think I would be a very fulfilled person yeah brilliant brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> yeah and and I did <laughs> not as well as he did but I did it um so uh, let me ask a very general question before we start talking about your books. Yeah. What exactly is the discipline of anthropology? Can you summarize for us what anthropologists do, what kind of questions they ask, what sort of research they do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in broadest terms, in perhaps plainest language that we can find, anthropology is the study of humans, the human condition, past and present, and perhaps now um, we're even thinking about anthropology of the future. So that's very vague. Let me add just a little more specificity to that. So um, in the American tradition, loosely um, Anglophone, American hemispheric tradition, but then kind of throughout the Americas, the model has, has um, followed. Um, anthropology consists of four subfields. And the idea is that as a discipline, we think holistically. So those subfields are cultural anthropology or sociocultural anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeological anthropology, archaeology, and then linguistic anthropology. And the idea is to um, think about whatever question that you want to ask about humanity, about humans, about why they do what they do. Um, from a holistic perspective. So we try to paint a broad picture of understanding cultural historical processes over time and in the moment. How does that sound that's to very, you? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a very good answer. Um, I, I really like the breadth of anthropology. I mean, historians study the past. I guess that's pretty broad. But the fact that you can delve into almost any aspect of the human experience at any time 
that, that's very attractive to me. <laughs> right. You can, you can enter again, the spaciousness of the discipline, you can enter um, into the discipline from so many perspectives, from so many vantage points. It's really about raising questions and then trying to use the tools uh, that the discipline provides to answer them. And I think as a, as a discipline, anthropology, um, anthropology is perhaps at its best. One of the ways that anthropology is at its best is when, um, I think across the, the subfields, we seek to complicate um, and show complexity and contradiction in generalizations, right? So any, an anthropologist, like one of an anthropologist's favorite pastimes is to take a generalization and then uh, poke holes in it, right? Poke holes in it by showing, um, showing variation, showing diversity, showing change over time. Um, so it's very vibrant, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is a lot of variation Yes, yes. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt about that. <laughs> um, let, let me ask a, a kind of follow up question. <clears throat> in in my experience running the New Books Network, and we have a New Books and Anthropology channel, a lot of the books uh, are what the anthropologists call ethnographies. What is ethnography? So ethnography is one. Ethnography is both a method and a product. So. Um, really deeply connected to the subfield of sociocultural anthropology, sometimes linguistic anthropology. And the idea with ethnography is that the anthropologist, here's the methodological part, really immerse themselves over a long period of time in a particular context with a group of people. Historically, that was in a place um, which, of course, we understand to be problematic now, like um, the kind of traditional ethnographic method in the discipline would be to um, go immerse oneself in community life in uh, generally, right, in small villages and mm-hmm. try to become the what we call or try to do what we call participant observation and um, so the method of ethnography is immersion over time, building deep connections. And of course, the idea of, you know, the isolated village on, you know, in, in various parts of the global South, that is, you know, deeply problematic. But that idea of really doing ethnographic work and immersing oneself in in a in a context with a group of people and coming to know that very intimately has persisted. So now, for example, I'm sure you're seeing, you know, um, books of anthropologists doing um, doing ethnographic method with, among Wall Street. Uh, traders, yeah, right? Yeah, or yeah. among yeah, we did. I think we did the book you're yeah, referencing. I'm yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> so that's the that's the method part, and then the other part is then writing that up in a particular kind of narrative and analytic way. You you can produce an ethnography as well, right? So both method mm-hmm. and and text. Let, let me uh, another follow up question prompted by what you just said. One of the things that we try to talk about in history is that we need to be objective. 
we need to remove ourselves from the context in order to sell the truth about what was going on. It seems to me that if you're doing an ethnography, this is particularly difficult because you're kind of becoming one of your uh, observance. I'm not sure the right word here. You're you're participating. Yes. How do you maintain a, 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 a distinction between you as the anthropological scientist and you as a member of that community? That sounds very difficult. Um, it is right. It is very, of course. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is very difficult. And I would say historically in the discipline, um, the idea was to be as quote unquote objective as possible. I would say that that, um, that disciplinary position is not by and large, we understand that to be not tenable. So I think instead of, you know, where we arrived, so I grew up with anthropology in the middle of, um, in the middle of a disciplinary crisis, of course, that's not a crisis, you know, um, not a crisis the kind that we like to, you know, that we want to highlight today. But it was an epistemological crisis in the late '80s and early '90s, where the question was around this: Well, we understand we can't be objective because there are all of these issues of power, of inequality, of who gets the right to represent. So how do we how do we continue with anthropology? Or as some people said, well, anthropology is dead because we don't believe in objectivity anymore, right? Well, of course, mm-hmm. anthropology persists. So I would say where we, where we have come, um, and really this is the anthropology that I grew up with, is epistemologically, right, rather than trying to be objective, we try to be self-conscious and, and intentional about our own positionality vis-a-vis the work that we do. Right. So instead of trying to hide under objectivity, we try to say, OK, here are the fault lines. Here was my position um, among these people. Here is why I did the work that I did so that folks can kind of sort out where and why one's ethnograph, like one's alignments in an ethnographic context occurred. So um, I started doing research as an undergraduate in Guatemala. And the year that a Guatemalan woman named Rigoberta Manchu won the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, in the Guatemalan context, you know, um, indigenous Guatemalans and the North American scholars who were working with them, folks that I trained under, you know, the, the clear position was there is no there is no neutral place for writing about um, indigenous language and cultural revitalization, my language and cultural revitalization. You're either supporting the work of indigenous scholars in the, in a context where there was genocide against them, or you're part of another project that has served to, um, to subordinate them in various ways. So I would say most of us, yeah, I mean, of anthropologists of my generation and then going forward, we understand that we're always positioned as, as, as complex human beings. And the best thing to do is, is to acknowledge that and work with it um, in our writing and in our texts. We call that reflexivity. Yeah. And and that's, I, I want to use the word obviously. That's obviously more epistemologically honest. 
because we are all actors in the world. We do come from places and make assumptions and have positions. And I, I don't want to say hiding. Objectivity is an important idea. Um, but I don't think you should make too much of it. Well, we can't. Right? I mean, I like what I really like what you said, Marshall, about it. it's more honest because, in fact, it that's that 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 is the truth of it, right? Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that's just true with a capital T. Yes, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We've matured. Yeah, I think that's right. I think as a discipline. Yeah, that's true. I I don't know if I can say that for history. I'm not sure. I haven't thought about it, but maybe I should. Um, so you were just talking about your work in Guatemala. Why don't we talk a little bit about that book, which is called uh, Maya Ethnolinguistic Identity, Violence, Cultural Rights, and Modernity in Highland Guatemala. Can you talk a little bit about what you did there? Yes. Um, and it's it's deeply like the, the transformation in that work is really deeply linked to Grinnell. So um, that book... Oh, I probably spent the first, mm, yeah, fifth, like I spent a good 15 years, not on that book, but on that, on that research. And, and the, and at its core, the book is really about um, indigenous linguistic and cultural revitalization and more specifically Maya linguistic, cultural and linguistic re- revitalization um, in the context of a, of a very violent state um, that, I mean, the Guatemalan state uh, really worked to eradicate by all kinds of means, culminating in genocide, the indigenous Maya population. Um, I, as I said, I kind of, I grew up as an anthropologist or like I was a, um, a student of anthropology and novice anthropologist, an anthropologist in training, aspiring, um, in conversation with folks my own age who were Maya uh, people really rallying around, writing about um, the importance of maintaining their languages and, um, and, culture, right? So basically to maintain their collective identity, which is distinct from the national identity. And they use scholarship to do that. Scholarship was always political in that context. So the book, the I would say in my dissertation, if I can go back that far, I really worked to, um, to kind of map out that history of Maya language revitalization and try to show some of the variation and multiplicity in, and tensions in the way that people, um, indigenous people, were, were and continue to promote Mayan languages in the face of an assimilationist project. The Grinnell piece is that, um, I should back up and say, when we're talking about the four subfields of anthropology, I'm trained as a linguistic anthropologist. So my dissertation was very much about language politics. When I came to Grinnell, um, I had the, after being there a little while, I had an amazing and like transformational opportunity to do um, a faculty study seminar with colleagues across the college, right? No anthropologist, one other, one anthropologist was there. Um, But, you know, folks, 
from across the disciplines and we were doing a Holocaust and genocide studies um, seminar. So we read together for uh, a semester and then we um, visited both Poland and Germany and thinking about the way that the, the Holocaust had been written, contested, right? Thinking about ethically, um, thinking about in a scholarly way. And that, um, having had that experience, really created a space where I had this urge to write more about the violence and the politics and the genocide behind the work that I had done in my dissertation, but I didn't know how to bring it forward. So it was really in my time at Grinnell that I was able to, to articulate and transform violence from the background of, of, um, of the research into the foreground of the book that became my first book on my ethnolinguistic identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned something which is very present in my own life. I've spent much of my life studying Russia. And the country that I love, Russia, has just invaded another country that I love, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the hell to do about this, <laughs> to be honest with you. I, it, 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 I, I really don't. I, I don't know what to think, because I have such strong feelings for both of those peoples. And, and I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I just want to stop. <laughs> I don't know what else to say than that. But I, I do recognize that as a scholar, somebody that studied Russian, writes about Russia, that I'm a player in the game. Yes. Like, I, I can't exclude myself. I'm there, whether I like it or not. And I can't hide behind objectivity. I'm in it. And, you know, the, the ethical choices that you have to make as a scholar in such a situation, I find uh, very disturbing, to be honest with you. Um, I, I don't know how to, I, it may be the case that history is behind anthropology because we haven't adopted positionality very well. <laughs> we don't know what to, to do. Well, but you're standing these. in that space right now. I mean, what are you? I, yeah, right. I mean, I, and I'm just looking dumb is what I am. I and kind of uninformed and I don't know what to say. Um, but, you know, I correspond with my Russian friends, my Ukrainian friends, and I, you know, it's, it's just a very difficult, it's, it's a difficult position to, to navigate as a scholar. So I, I, I definitely, I respect that. Um, so let's move on to your second book, uh, Narratives of Conflict, Belonging in the State, Discourse and Social Life in Post-War Ireland. I actually lived in Ireland. Um, and I'm very aware, since you are a linguist, of the uh, importance of the uh, Irish language to many of these people. Yes. And, and, and how it was almost... And I don't want to generalize about Ireland. This is among my friends and the people that I knew. It was almost a constant point of tension that that they didn't know what to do with it. They it, maybe you could talk a little bit about your experiences there. Yeah, but you have to tell me where you lived in Ireland. I was in Limerick. I was in Limerick, yeah. Ireland. Uh, I had a lovely uh, year there at the University of Limerick. Oh. The people there were extraordinarily nice to me. And yes, it's a so. Are you going to go, like, I want to just ask one more question. Have you been back or are you still? No, I haven't been back. This was 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, so the Ireland, the Ireland research, um, well, let me back up and say, right, thing, our work is always relational. And I, 
um, these questions of a history of violence, right? Violence, national identity, the place of language in the in politics of belonging were so central in Guatemala and they're so they they're so they're they're very central in Ireland in a different way, right? And I um I wanted to I wanted to tr- I wanted to continue asking those questions and related questions, but in a different context. Um, right. Because being an anthropologist in Guatemala is very different than being an anthropologist in Ireland. And I felt like I needed to take that on both, um, both my positionality as a scholar and then to kind of push the boundaries of what I thought I knew asking related questions in a different, very different, um, cultural context and historical moment. Um, I think of the, so in response, going back to your question about the, the issue of language in Ireland and the way, I mean, um, Irish language revitalization was absolutely central to the Irish nationalist movement and really Mm -hmm. the, what we would now call the decolonizing project, right? Um, that did that did uh, result in a violent war and then a subsequent civil war. I think about so what I heard in your question, I immediately thought of the work of um, a brilliant author, Irish author named Hugo Hamilton. I don't know if you've read his stuff, but no, I it's haven't. stunning. Hugo Hamilton is an Irish um, writer and his father was an Irish nationalist, right? Somebody who was really promoting um, like monolingualism and Irish and, you know, making Irish the, you know, well, Irish is, you know, one of the official languages of the state, but all of that political work around Irish. And so his father was deeply committed to, to rescuing Irish and his mother was um, a German refugee from uh, a Christian uh, Catholic refugee from Germany during World War II. So anyway, they got married. And in Hugo, Hugo Hamilton, um, the book, the, the memoir, this particular memoir, it's called The Speckled People. And he writes about... Oh, wait, I'm writing this yeah, down. Yeah, The Speckled People. <laughs> and he writes about in, right growing up in Dublin... South Dublin, um, and his father, um, you know, made it forbidden to speak in English. He and he he insisted they only speak in Irish. Like, like he so in the household he learned Irish from his father, and he learned German from his mother. So English was always outside the house, and that of course put him um, at odds with with certain flows of, of, of life in Dublin at the time. And so he talks about, and of course, so he has Irish Hugo Hamilton. He has it. He speaks it. Um, I came to know him actually when I was on a Fulbright in Ireland and um, like in an amazing sort of this way, we talk about um, 
luck or the universe. Um, But he, but the thing that I just remember him saying recently, um, he talks about Irish as the, he called it the ghost language, right? That it's always looming and casting a shadow um, that, that never goes away. Right. And never materializes completely in a collective sense. Um, so yeah, but by the, by the time I did, by the time I did that, the Ireland book, I didn't delve into the politics of Irish, um, language revitalization as much as I really dug into the questions of through language. What does it mean to build a democratic state that emerges out of a, like a radical history of violence, right? Um, the, one of the most profound things I, uh, that we can perhaps understand about from the case of Ireland, and you will probably appreciate that as, this as a historian, the war of independence with Great Britain um, right. There was United guerrilla Front. There was, you know, parliamentary elections to make Ireland independent. So Irish folks were quite united in the independence, i.e. anti-colonial movement. And the terms of that independence were so deeply contested that it produced a civil war. Mm-hmm. You know, so then you had people who were on the same side one day. Same side, yeah. Executing each other, yeah. you know, five days later. So, and the the division of the island. So, so what, so what I really wanted to dig into is, you know, in those early years of state formation in the Republic, how did conflict, how did that, how did conflict and violence um, persist, transform? And then how did that work out in terms of trying to build a democratic apparatus. So language, discursive data, um, like language rather than an object of interrogation, Irish or English, discourse and the language used that people used to talk about these things really became the object of my inquiry. And I'll say one more thing mm-hmm. about that because it's it's some like you can you should tell me, Marshall, if I'm going too far afield, but um one of the most surprising things to me that I discovered in that process is that I was looking at court documents, court records. And in Ireland in the 1930s, there were tons of people brought before the courts for charges of bad language. Here's <laughs> the language part. For like here they appear, charges of bad language, right? And they that means they were they were swearing and carrying on, you know in, in, in public spaces. And, but it turns out that it really wasn't that big deal if men, men were occasionally brought before the court for, for cases of bad language, but it was predominantly women whose language was being policed and brought before the courts when they were, when they were carrying on about and, and, and swearing in public. So there's this really interesting thing happening with gender and language in the context of this new state, right? That's trying to be equal. So my, I think my overall point is language as an object and in the, 
in the Guatemalan case um, transformed in my second book into um, language as a kind of a kind of social performance and a code that people use strategically. And then of course, right, gets policed quite differently depending upon one's identity. And so just for I understand, there were laws on the books that said you couldn't cuss in public. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hard for an, uh, to, to, to speak of my own positionality. That's hard for an American to imagine. <laughs> yes, very true. Very true. Yeah, I could, yeah, very hard. But but I really liked your expression about the, the Irish language as a, as a kind of ghost language, and I don't want to offend any Irish people or anything like that. It and it brings to mind experiences that I had in Ukraine decades ago now, and I would meet Ukrainians. We'd speak Russian, and I'd ask them if they knew Ukrainian, and they said. Yes, I know Ukrainian, and and please change the topic. Uh huh. <laughs> and why? Because it was dangerous, or because uh, it's just that they did. You know, it it wasn't something that they were particularly interested in or proud of. They they were much more interested, and they knew I couldn't converse with them in Ukrainian. Um, but you know, these questions are quite alive in modern Ukraine and in Russia, where there are uh, supposedly you know, uh, efforts to get one linguistic group to speak the other one's language. I tried to put that as neutrally as I possibly could uh-huh. in the interest of state building or belonging. Yes. And there's a long history of this in Eastern Europe, very long. Um, and uh, again, from the American perspective, it's very hard for me to bring to mind the rationale behind this. I, you know, I sometimes regret that I don't know Spanish because I think I should. <laughs> Well, it's because, never too late. <laughs> no, it is never too late. But yeah, Duolingo, here I come. Because, you know, a huge proportion of Americans speak Spanish. And I'm just fine with that. <laughs> I just feel sort of ignorant that I don't. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. You brought me back to Ireland. Um, let's talk about anthropological lives a little bit. You did something which I would like to do with historians. That is interviewed a bunch of them about what they do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, so this was kind of, I, can I call it, it, so explain the research pro- process for this and, and why you did it. Well, the this project actually, I have to say, um, was the, the idea for the project and to interview anthropologists absolutely driven by the vision of my colleague, my mentor, my dear friend, Virginia Dominguez. Um, when she was president of the American Anthropological Association. So um, we often, and what kind of the initial thing, so now I'm, I'm revoicing her words. Um, you know, of course you, I'm sure you know, right inside the actor's studio. Yeah, I Well, do. Virginia had this idea that she wanted to do, like inside the president's studio when she was the president of AAA and interview, um, you know, interview anthropologists of all ilk, um, or at least not of all ilk, because we can't do that, but a variety of different kinds of anthropologists positioned very differently um, institutionally and in public life, precisely um, in this kind of public facing in this public-facing, like in this public-facing way, kind of in the way that we're talking about here, to say what is anthropology and what do anthropologists do, and to show 
I think the robusticity and the space of the discipline um, outside, right, in, in, in public, because we all, all of us, all of us, I've never met an anthropologist who hasn't confronted the Indiana Jones scenario or the right. digging up bones scenario. Um, right. And we don't necessarily, as anthropologists, do a good job of um, we do, I think we do a great job in the often, right. In the context or in, in, for those people who join us, but for outsiders, folks don't understand what anthropology is because we haven't done a good job of that. And then therefore, um, I think we, and Virginia and I would agree, right. That we lose space, um, in, in creating relevancy for our work and, you know, making it, making it matter somehow. So it was really a book for, not for, right. It was, it was a book for, it is a book for um, potential interlocutors of anthropology, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. students Mm -hmm. whose, you know, parents want to know what, (laughs) what they're spending all this money in their undergraduate education for, or what if somebody wants to hire, like somebody applies, um, for a position and they have a PhD in anthropology. Well, what, what, what's, what's going to happen with that? So it's really, a, a the impetus was really about public facing, um, kind of opening the doors and saying, this is what the discipline does and here's what lives can look like. And here's where our contributions might be. Yeah. Well, kudos to you and Dr. Dominguez, because this is an issue quite close to my own heart. One of the things that I felt when I was a professor is that we didn't do a very good job of explaining to the public what the hell we were doing. And because the pressure, at least in history, is to publish articles in obscure journals and books and that not very many people read. Uh, but, but a kind of general uh, sort of explanation of the value, which historians, in my case, do for uh, the Commonwealth was almost universally lacking. And so in in the absence of us telling people what we were doing, we were let other people do it. <laughs> that, that did not work well. That's never good. Right. It's usually better to be the author of your own narrative. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. So, you know, one of the things that the New Books Network tries to do is get the voices of scholars across a hundred disciplines out there so you can actually see that they're real people. I mean, the first question that I always ask in all of the interviews I do is tell us about yourself because you and these books you write and the articles and the teaching you do doesn't fall out of the sky. You know, like there's a story there <laughs> that is often very interesting and revealing as in your case. Um, so could, could you, what did, uh, this may be too general a question. What did you generally discover having done all these interviews? I would say the thing that stands out most to me if I were to, yeah, the thing that stands out most to me about that work is, I, you hear me pause, like, what is my hesitation? I'm going to say this and then I'll qualify. Well, that means you're thinking. Yeah, and I like no, that. I mean, it's, it's sort of, a, I would say, and I, I tend to think this might be, this might be something inherent. I mean, not inherent, but this might be something about the particulars of the discipline is that folks who um, who study anthropology and then who became anthropologists, it's almost like a secular vocation in the sense 
that folks, you know, the thing that I said about how I fell in love with anthropology, which is deeply linked to my, my development, you know, as an adult human being, this spirit of like people, um, feeling like anthropology is a calling occurred again and again and again and again. Like it's this deep dedication to not to the, not to the discipline, but kind of, I mean, of course to the discipline, but a deep dedication, like this is the work that I must do that I'm compelled to do and anthropology allows me to do it because everybody's doing different work. So it's not mm-hmm. the, like there's not unity and, Oh, we're all dedicated to doing the same work. It's like, we're all um, the folks, not all, but the folks with whom we were able to, to talk and think um, all shared this deep commitment to their trajectory of, of, of becoming and remaining in anthropology. But that might be from inside a museum. That might be from inside a classroom. It might be from working on advocacy issues, right? Or within a legal context. So that was surprising to me. Um, well, I think this, this notion of calling is true for a lot of scholars across a lot of disciplines, because I think one thing the public at large doesn't recognize uh, is the degree of sacrifice that you have to make to do this. I mean, they think of it, you know, the tenured professor in their office with their feet up on their desk, teaching, you know, six hours a week and think what a cushy job. It's not like that at all. <laughs> right. Do you find, Marshall, have, do you, I'm very curious about that. Like, do you find that, that, that kind of that secular vocational calling to do this thing. Um, do you find that kind of across disciplines? Is it, is it something that oh, you hear so. yeah, all the time? I, I, oh, I, I definitely think so. Yes. That's I mean, so interesting. Uh, these people are very devoted to their work and their disciplines. Uh, it is kind of like a calling. They, they will do it for almost nothing. Yes. They will continue to do it. I mean, I just to speak autobiographically for a second, I resigned my uh, professorship at the university of Iowa I didn't stop doing history. I mean, I ran the New Books Network. I built the New Books Network. So I'm kind of a business person now, I guess you could say. Um, but I have a book coming out in March. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> that, I, that I will not be paid for. I will make no money off of it. Right. it, was, it yeah. I mean, I just wanted to continue to do it uh, because I, I, I'm never happier than I am when I have a pile of documents and someone says, figure out what happened. <laughs> what, and will, what, are you bringing someone in to interview you about your book, I hope? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, I mean, given that I'm the Thanks. I'm the editor of the network, I can probably find someone to talk yes. to me about it. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I just really, you know, I I really wanted to continue to do the work. I mean, even though, you know, in terms of my kind of mo- more general project, which is the New Books Network and public education and these things, which I think is very valuable, there was still this piece missing. I wanted to do this other thing, and so I carved time out of my schedule. I mean, I told you in an earlier exchange of emails. I get up at 4.30 every morning, That's partially so I can get a couple hours to do this because then I have to go to my day job, which is the New Books Network. Oh, you're <laughs> writing at 4.30. You get up to do your own writing yeah, I get, yeah, well, yeah, well, no, I get up and I do some, yeah, I, do, I give myself a couple of hours to, to do the thing that I really love to do. Yeah. 
And then I go, well, I mean, I love this too. I mean, it's very valuable and I get to talk to people like you, which is very rewarding and we're educating the public and that's great too. But from a kind of idiosyncratic or almost, I, I want to say like narcissistic point of view, I, I, I really want, I like doing this work and, and I'm not paid for it now. I don't care. Right. It's never about the money. <laughs> no, no. Nope. no. Anybody that goes into academia looking for money is in need of a talking to. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, talking with us today. We have kind of a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Because that's another thing people don't understand. Academics always have another project. Yeah. Always. <laughs> so I have two projects, actually. Yeah, there you go. One is um, <laughs> one project is a circuitous return to the Guatemalan context, um, and oh, I'm uh, I'm working on a project that's focused on um, indigenous genocide survivor testimony. So Maya genocide survivor testimony again, thinking about language. Um, and narrative, right? A way of telling stories, what that can tell us about survivorship, about justice, about hopes for the future. Um, so I'm, I'm um, in, in, like I'm, I'm chapters into a book project on that. I'm really gratified to say that this book, this research project, I'm working on um with my colleagues in Guatemala whom I got who you know folks who were who were doing advocacy scholars um, who were doing advocacy around indigenous language and identity um, who, who have continued to work I'm finally arriving at a place where um, we're doing explicitly collaborative work rather than um, maybe implicitly before so I'm working on that um, so it's very much a, it's a book about um, memory, right? As opposed to history, um, memory and how violence lives on and transform and is transformed, how we can find that in, in my uh, genocide survivor testimony. And then the other thing that I'm working on um, is a project or some connected projects around also the linguistic part um, around what we call femicide or feminicide, which is mm-hmm. right. The murder of women as a gendered crime. So like when women are murdered because of their gender um, mm-hmm. as, as a social um, right, as a social political phenomena that crosses borders and, um, yeah, so I've written a little bit about that public pieces, actually. I had the support of Grinnell College to write a couple of things um, that appeared in recently, very short things, um, in Ms. Uh, com, And I have a new chapter coming out on, on femicide in the global context. We don't name, there isn't the, and like, why is this important? Or just what do I want to say about this? I think that matters is that we don't recognize formally, legally, the crime of femicide in the United States, which is an anomaly in the Americas um, and Hmm. lots of other places. Right. Um, So Guatemala, for example, which has a horrible history of human rights violations um, has like adopted a law against 
femicide um, in, I think, the Guatemalan laws, 2010, 2008 or 2010, and so forth and so on. So really thinking about um, what when we name crimes and when we don't and what are the consequences of that and thinking again comparatively, this comparative thinking is really, I think, core to to what I hope to do uh, in the classroom and then what I hope to do as a scholar. So that's something I'm very um, deeply invested in as well, I would say. Well, good luck on those projects. Thank you. Thank you so much. They, they sound fascinating. I'm a little bit envious because I have to run a business and I don't get to, <laughs> I get to go do a lot of research. Well, you didn't say anything about your new book, so I'd like, I'd like uh, to. It's a secret. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, yeah, it's a secret. No, it's not very much of a secret. I will. Um, I'll send you a copy. Yes, that would be that would be grand. <laughs> send me a link. <laughs> send me yeah, something. I'm very curious. All right. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Brigantine French about all of her work as an anthropologist in the discipline of anthropology. And this is the uh, um, Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. I'm Marshall Poe. Thanks, Brigantine. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you.